Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, welcome to our live online worship here at First Presbyterian Church. We are going to be continuing today our study of Paul's letters to the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians. And today we're going to be reading from chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of all, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Well, today, as I've said, we are continuing our study of the book of Philippians as an, exam as an examination of what I have called underdog faith. Now again, what is underdog faith? An underdog faith is a faith that no one expects from people that no one expects in circumstances that you would never expect. An underdog faith, an underdog is someone who takes those unexpected, usually daunting circumstances and turns them upside down. He has an unexpected joy in the face of suffering, an unexpected courage in the face of persecution, an unexpected kindness in the face of great cruelty, an unexpected patience in the face of great urgency, unexpected tenacity in the face of overwhelming odds, an unexpected generosity in the face of poverty, an unexpected hope in the face of tragedy. So Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while he was on his fourth missionary journey. As a matter of fact, he was writing to thank the Philippians for their financial support for this mission trip. But here's the catch. He was writing this letter from prison. Paul had been taken into custody by the Roman authorities, and you can read about that in the last chapters of the book of Acts. But after giving thanks for the Christians in Philippi and praying that God would accomplish his mission and purpose, he says, guess what? I'm in prison. Isn't that great? Can you believe it? He wrote, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, as a pastor, I have led mission trips and I have sent mission teams out into the field, adult mission trips, youth mission trips, but I've never had a member of one of those teams arrested or thrown in prison. 
As a matter of fact, I think if something like that happened to one of our mission teams, we would consider that a disaster. We would consider that a nightmare scenario. I, I mean, I can just imagine calling home and telling the family of a mission team member, guess what? Your teenager is in a Mexican jail or your father was taken into custody by Iraqi police. I mean, there would be calls to the embassy, there would be pleas for help to our mission partners, and there would be round-the-clock prayer vigils. And I can tell you that I would never call home to tell a parent, guess what? Your kid's in jail. Isn't that great? This is working to advance the gospel. Or now, I'm awaiting execution, but it's all good. If I survive, it'll be great for the kingdom. I know that I would be fired as soon as I got off the plane when I got home. But Paul is looking at his circumstances and he's saying, you know what? This is great. I can't believe that by shutting me in prison, God has opened the doors of new relationship in Christ. I mean, it's just like the patriarch Joseph who said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Paul was saying God is going to take this unexpected circumstance and he's going to turn it upside down. What Satan and our enemies meant for evil he is turning for good. First, he says, God is using this experience to increase our exposure. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the imperial guard were a mix of decorated veterans and well-born sons of prominent Roman families, families of influence and families of position. And Paul is saying that I would never have had access to these people before. We would never have had a chance to share the gospel with people like this. I have the opportunity to take the gospel straight to the top. So as bad as this may look, and it was bad because Paul would eventually be executed in Rome. He never left Rome alive. As bad as it looks, this was no accident. Paul believed that God had put him in this unexpected circumstance for a reason. But he also says that God is using this experience to embolden our commitment. He writes, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment and persecution inspired the other Christian witnesses. And the other believers looked at him and they saw his humility and his courage. Courage means a lot. Courage counts a lot. Personal courage speaks even when we cannot speak. Our courage to stand when God says to stand or to go when God says to go tells people what you and I really believe about him. It tells the world that we believe that God is good, that God is wise, that God is sovereign, and that he knows what he is doing. And that's why we are willing to bet our lives on him. 
And personal courage is more inspiring even than promises of comfort. People follow courage. Personal courage inspires people to stand firm, and personal courage inspires people to go and tell. Martyrs inspire missionaries. Courage inspires world changers. You know, by my courage, I may not change the world, but I may influence someone who will. Personal courage challenges people. Personal courage moves people. Personal courage inspires people and sets them free. Now, why did Paul have so much courage? It was because he had been jailed for the Lord before. Paul had had experience in prison, even in Philippi. In Acts chapter 15, uh, 16, in Philippi, Paul and Silas were attacked. They were stripped and they were beaten by a mob, thrown into prison and their feet chained in stocks. They should have been shaking in fear, but instead of crumbling, they spent the night singing songs and telling the other prisoners about Jesus. And listen to what happened. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were there listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. They should have been shaken, but instead God shook the earth and shook the doors from their hinges, from their shackles, and from their ankles. And the jailer was so overwhelmed that he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your entire household. And that night, the jailer and his whole family were baptized and became followers of Jesus. Paul had courage because he knew what God could do. He'd seen it before. When people try to put the gospel in prison, God opens the doors in ways that people would never expect. Yes, Paul was in prison, but for Paul, for him, prison meant open doors. The world tries to close doors. God opens doors. And in this case, if Paul can't go out and preach to the people, God would bring the people who needed to hear the gospel to him. The soldiers could have gone their entire lives without ever hearing the gospel, without ever hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. But now they were trapped in Paul's prison of evangelism. They had to take food to Paul every day. They had to check on him several times a day. And every time they went in to see him, he was, he was praying or he was singing or he was preaching about Jesus Christ. And they had to hear it over and over and over again. The point is that whether he gets out of trouble or whether he keeps us in trouble, God can take, take whatever circumstances the world throws at us and turn them to his purposes. He'd seen it in his own life, and he'd seen it in the life of his Lord. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was supposed to be the end of Jesus, but instead the death and resurrection became the catalyst for the recreation of the whole world. 
You know, this story makes me think about a joke that I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. It's one of my favorite jokes. It's, it's a joke, a favorite joke of the late President Ronald Reagan. And he used to tell it all the time. And the joke goes like this. There was a famous psychologist who was conducting a study comparing despair and hope, pessimism and optimism in children. And one day, a colleague came by to observe his work. And so he went to see his first subject. And when they opened the door to this room, there was a little boy who was sitting in the middle of a room full of toys, but he was crying. And the, the doctor asked, why, little boy, why are you crying? You've got all these toys around you. He said, oh, yes, sir. But, but one day, all of these toys are going to be broken, and I'll be sad again. And it was very sad to the scientist. And so they went to the second door, and they opened the second door. And as soon as he opened the door, he was just hit with the smell of a barnyard. And he looked inside, and there was a pile of manure about chest high. And there was a little boy just throwing it on all over the place. He was wearing boots and overalls, and he was just digging into the manure. And the scientist asked him, the psychologist asked him, boy, what are you doing? Why are you just digging through that pile of manure? And the little boy said, Sir, I know if there's a pile of manure this big, there's got to be a pony down here somewhere. All of President, uh, President Reagan's people called this joke the pony joke. And I'm telling this joke again, not just because it's my favorite joke. I'm going to tell it, and I'm going to keep telling it, because I want you to know this joke. I want you to understand this joke. I want you to understand that it's not just a joke, it's a challenge. You live your life behind door number one, miserable in a room full of toys, or do you live your life behind door number two, looking for the pony in the pile? Paul was in prison, but he knew that God had a pony for him. So right now, we find ourselves in a crisis. In some ways, like Paul, we feel like we're under house arrest. Every now and then, we might be let out for a little bit of sunshine for good behavior, but we're only paroled. We're not really free. I mean, we all know about the health crisis, whether it's from personal testimonies or news reports. We know that COVID-19 is a brutal disease. We know the numbers of new cases, the number of hospitalizations, the numbers of deaths, so many Texans, so many people around the world, and especially in our country, suffering. You know, even though the death rate is low, we have to take it seriously because the damage is real and some of the effects are permanent. But because of the health crisis, we also know that we have an economic crisis. Our economy has suffered, and not just in the abstract but in terms of gross domestic product and stock numbers, but most of all in terms of jobs and the real-life effects on real people. It's not just about wealth. It's about survival. It's not just about job statistics. It's about people and about poverty. And because of both the health crisis and the economic crisis, we are also facing a severe mental health crisis in this country. According to, a, to an article that just came out in The Atlantic, a third of Americans are feeling severe anxiety right now, and nearly a quarter are showing signs of depression. In April, texts to a federal emergency health, uh, health hotline were up 1,000% from the year before. 
According to the article, depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance abuse, child abuse, and domestic violence almost always surge after natural disasters. But a pandemic, unlike an earthquake or a fire, is invisible, and it makes it all the more anxiety-inducing. Because when a wildfire ends, the flame subsides and the smoke clears. But someone struggling with the psychological effects of a pandemic is less like a fire survivor than he is a domestic violence victim still living in the house with her abuser or a traumatized soldier still deployed in an active zone. And I'm so proud that this church takes seriously the ministry of mental health and has partnered with ministries like NAMI and Pathways to Hope. But the longer this crisis lasts, the deeper these wounds are going to get and the more people are going to need good counseling and the gospel of Jesus Christ to heal wounds that cannot be seen. So we have a crisis. But if we look at it this way, if we look at, the way, look at it the way that Paul looked at a crisis, this is also an opportunity. Back in April, one of our elders... Our clerk of session, David West, challenged the leadership of our church with a question. In an email, he wrote, When our children and grandchildren ask, What did you do in the COVID-19 war, Daddy? I want all of the members of FPC to have a ready answer. Now that one question sparked a lot of conversation. The needs following this crisis are going to be enormous, but they are not going to be bigger than our God. And God has trusted this church with incredible resources to share at a time such as this. And so the session, in good Presbyterian fashion, put together a committee to talk about how we would address both the current crisis and its aftermath. And the result was the establishment of a commission to lead our congregation in both our short-term and long-term community response to this pandemic. We call this effort Redeeming the Crisis. Isaiah 58.10 a verse that we were studying back in March when this crisis began says this, Satisfy the desires of the afflicted, and then your light will rise in the darkness. Redeeming the crisis. Redeeming the crisis. And the task force that leads it will be focused on meeting both immediate needs and addressing long-term damage from COVID-19. This is not an effort that we are going to undertake on our own, but rather we are going to be working strategically and collaboratively with our mission partners to find the places where our efforts can best be applied. We've already begun by giving emergency funds to many of our mission partners dealing with some of the most immediate needs of San Antonio, particularly as those needs affect our homeless population and those who have lost work. But we will also be addressing long-term needs created by the damage of the season. 
We'll be addressing issues like mental illness, financial health, the impact of ch on children in our community, the brokenness of families and marriages, all while pursuing opportunities to move forward with the gospel by seeking out opportunities for church planting and kingdom growth. This is not just an effort to give away money or to supply band-aids. This pandemic is a generational crisis, and we are looking at this as a generational response. And South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, rather than just pulling people out of the river, we need to go upstream and find out why they keep falling into the river in the first place. Now, much of what we do will build on efforts already well-established, but we're also going to be breaking some new ground, too. And you're going to be hearing a lot about all of these initiatives, a lot of these projects. But here's the thing. This is not just a work of First Presbyterian Church as an institution. This is an all-hands-on-deck movement. This means we need everyone involved. One of the first things that we will be doing is inventorying our congregation to see what skills and resources, relationships, and connections we can bring to bear for the sake of our community. Now, it's true. There are some people who are exploiting this crisis. They are fear-mongering for political gain or economic advantage. Paul even dealt with people like this. He said, some indeed preach Christ from enmity and rivalry, envy and rivalry. Others are ignoring the crisis, trying to pretend like it's all hype and that there, there's nothing real to it and that we're all just being fooled. But God is calling his people to redeem the crisis. To redeem means to buy or to trade, to exchange one thing for another. You get something because someone pays for it. Jesus redeemed he paid for our forgiveness for our sins and our reconciliation with god with the cost of his own body and blood on the cross paul gave up his freedom so that he could be in a position to share the gospel with his captors redeeming the crisis will cost us something it will take time it will take resources and it will take effort but as the catechism says, we do not give to God that which costs us nothing. He has given us the right location, the right resources, the right people, the right connections, and the right relationships for such a time as this. And we will be able to reach people we never would have been able to reach before. And like the Lord has said to Isaiah, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, and then your light will rise in the darkness. He is putting us in the game. Our salvation is paid for by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, but he is giving us the opportunity, like Paul, to share in the experience of God's redemptive work for the gospel and to reach our city in this moment. The Lord is summoning us to reach out to our city, to reach in to one another, and to reach up to him in prayer, and in worship. In Galatians, Paul wrote, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. God has put us in this pandemic prison so that we can reach the people 
that we never thought we'd be able to reach before. People who would have never given the gospel or First Presbyterian Church a second thought. The Holy Spirit is leading us and will continue to lead us into relationships born of crisis that will be redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ. We believe that God has presented us with a great opportunity to show his love, to draw his attention and to, through his works and through the word, and to draw people to his kingdom. By shutting us in, he has opened new doors. He has shaken up the world, but he has set us free and is sending us out. Our God is calling us to a new challenge. Our God is calling us to redeem this crisis, not to ignore it, not to exploit it, but to redeem it for the sake of his son and for the sake of his people. This crisis is real, but our response to this crisis is real as well. Are we going to choose door number one or door number two? Are we going to live our lives surrounded by toys or dig in until we find the pony, the prize that God has put there for us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our God, as we come together this morning, we know that you are doing great things for us. You have put us in just the right position. You have raised the temperature of the world just enough to open people's eyes and ears and hearts to hear your good word, to hear your truth, to hear the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us now to step into this moment. Lord, we know that sometimes we are slow to move because we believe that we must be thoughtful. But even though a glacier is slow moving, O oh Lord, it changes the landscape. Help us, O oh Lord, to change the landscape of this city by your power and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.